digital got a little black eye going in because we didn't understand all the things that we didn't know we needed to understand. My line has always been digital done right is transparent to the source. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. This is a mostly bi-monthly show where we dive into the cutting edge technology behind professional audio products. My name is Dan Hughley, and on the show today, Ted and I are joined by Frank Wells, who has a tremendous history in radio, recording studios, and with the Audio Engineering Society. We'll discuss being at the cutting edge of both analog and digital technologies, his first experiences with Dither, tracking sound signatures of Russian submarines in the Atlantic Ocean, using an SSL console as the world's largest and most expensive mouse, and a whole lot more. Well, hello and welcome to the Focus Right Pro podcast. Uh, we have a great guest on today. He is the former AES president, VP, and governor of the Audio Engineering Society. Uh, Frank has been a member uh, for 25 or more years, uh, along with holding many other titles in the Audio Engineering Society. And of course, if that isn't enough, uh, Frank has built studios, served time in the armed forces as a radio technician, and many other various editorial positions uh, at our industry's most prominent publications. I'd like to welcome Frank Wells uh, to the show. Let's get started with a, a simple question. Um, what, what brought you uh, to be interested in audio products to begin with? Oh, I was a bad musician in high school and such too, since we all were. And uh, <laughs> knowing that I could uh, look and say, gee, Michael Jackson's the same age I am. Al Miola's the same age I am. I have no career as a musician. However, <laughs> The technology always interested me. Yeah, and uh, you spent a decade at Masterphonics, uh, or or more, and you oversaw quite a bit while you were there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the evolution of music production during your time there? Oh, Masterphonics was a great playground for for audio. I went there in nineteen. Let's see, eighty nine. I did six years in radio broadcast out of college. And then uh, as chief engineer of FM radio stations and working side for AM and FMs across Middle Tennessee, my better interns were from a recording program at MTSU. I was working for their radio station, and they introduced me to uh, Glenn Meadows. And I went up and went in with Glenn and Mylon, and they, we sat down and modified some modules, and I fixed an LA-2A for them. And, and uh, they said, well, how would you like to get involved in recording studios? So I did. So. Walking in there, it was a very different environment than radio, but it's all just large system signal flow in some ways. I always tell people that get intimidated by the big consoles. It's like, you just have to learn one row of knobs, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter that there's 500 of them. <laughs> right. You just it's have true. to learn it's one true. row. So yep. we started out in Masterphonics. It was very digital at the time. Mm -hmm. They were on the cutting edge of digital. I had had some experimentation with digital audio from college coursework. I had a uh, microprocessor class, and I built a sampling oscilloscope interface for it for my senior project. And at the radio station, we bought our first CD players, and we did some remote recording production on um, an F1 equivalent audio as black and white dots on video cassettes as uh, very cool as the same as the 1630 kind of thing. It's a consumer version of what became the 1630, which is what the Sony 1630, which is the format everyone used for CD replication masters for years. Anyway, Masterphonics used a JVC system that Sony and yeah. JVC were developing together at the time. And they decided to go in different ways on the project and created their own 
incompatible formats, as it were. But the JVC had a unique feature in it, besides the fact that it actually sounded good. It had a, um, a little dot that crawled in the bottom of the video screen that was a code for every frame of a project. And that code let you identify the frame. And then, of course, you had row numbers and such because that's how TV works. It, it scans in rows and such. So you had left, right, left, right error correction data in every row. And you had a frame number. They could do sample accurate editing eight years before I got there. They oh. had been able to do uh, sample accurate editing for 12 years before the Sony was capable of doing it because the uh, time code oh. was not synchronous on the Sony, but the time code on the JVC <laughs> was developed from those little dots. So anyway, it was a very hip, leading edge. Glenn had a digital mastering console. Uh, so walking in there, I walked from radio yeah. into a world-class studio with big SSL 4K systems. And they were, again, very digital. They used the uh, Mitsubishi and Atari 32-track uh, PD machines primarily and recorded to these JVC systems. And we rented those all over Nashville. Jimmy Bowen at the time used uh, Glenn Meadows exclusively for his mastering. So if you were working on an MCA project, you recorded it to a JVC that we rented them even if you weren't working in one of our rooms and it was all edited and mastered and such at Masterphonics. We were always looking for what was next and what was new. Of course, that was before DOS. Uh, so every time you worked on a project like that, you did assemble editing, which meant you mm -hmm. took the first chunk you wanted. And then if you went to another take, you added on the next chunk. And then you went to the other take or back to the original and you added another chunk and you built your project up one piece at a time in a linear fashion, which there was no insert. You can't do an insert mm -hmm. editing. DAWs changed everything. So if you ask how production changed over time, the ability yeah. to do that kind of editing was pretty remarkable. A story in point, Bela Fleck at one point had recorded a album called, it was released as Tales of the Acoustic Planet. There's a volume two out now, but this was volume one. And he had recorded with his heroes, with Branford Marcellus and with Chick Corea and with other folks. And there are duos and trios and quartets and such on this project. And he had multiple takes with them. He didn't want to be the one to ask Chick Corea to punch in on a flub. <laughs> so he said, yeah, but let's do another take. So he had all these great yeah. takes. And of course, these people are jazz players <laughs> and, and they were improvising on this and they would have brilliant things that they had come up with that they maybe only played on one of the takes. So he took all of these things and he mixed them down to rough uh, two mixes on ADATs. And once while he was on tour, he took all these ADATs with him and built an edit list. And then he and I spent 89 and a half hours with multi-track tape machines. I was the technical facilitator, really, because I knew mm -hmm. how the synchronizers worked. <laughs> and we would take, he said, okay, I want to take two up until this point, and we had we assembly built the masters to mix from for that album. And again, for one album, it took 89 and a half hours of loading tapes up, finding the offsets, punching in, and then just documenting all of this in case we ever had to back up an edit or two or something like that and recreate one. And towards the end of that project, he had a couple of things where he wanted to do some bending of notes and flying things on a couple of tracks, uh, a couple of lines that were recorded by Edgar Meyer. And he said, well, there's these guys in our back room who do pitch correction um, for a living. 
you know, the workstation guys probably did. And um, so oh, we wow. had lines ran from all our machine rooms to their setup. Yeah. So yeah. we flew over a rough mix that they put on a couple of tracks and the tracks that he wanted to manipulate. And he discovered Pro Tools and he did his next album in Pro Tools so that he could do all of that editing so much easier within the fly and do it with just grab a track and manipulate it or punch in or grab a whole chunk from one section into another digital changed the world as far mm -hmm. as uh, as production went so that was step one is going to pro tools step two yeah. in my 10 years there of how production changed over that time was the introduction of the adat which mm -hmm. allowed people to move outside of a large facility like ours with all of our gear and toys and take a rough mix on an ADAT and go record in a small room somewhere, became producers' personal spaces and such. So instead of spending you know, $1,200 a day to work in a room to do overdubs uh, or edits and punch-ins, they would go do that in their own personal spaces. That and the digital audio workstation becoming powerful enough to do all of the multi-tracking just ripped the industry as we knew it apart. And you sure. still needed big rooms for lots of space. You still needed big rooms if you want to get all the musicians together at once, if you want to actually have acoustic spaces to record in that uh, sounded great and such. But other than the tracking, section uh first the overdubs went away and then the mixing went away and everything changed with that and that really uh, it was the democratization of the of the industry bringing all of these products down to where they were available through through music stores and such and that became the primary sales mechanism for professional audio gear as opposed to the specialty companies and direct from manufacturers for $500,000 tape machines and such, but it destroyed, recreated, yeah, maybe yeah. would be the better phrase, but it recreated an entire industry because mics were cheaper, preamps were cheaper. You only needed what I call audio bookends. You only need transducers on the front end and transducers on yeah. the back end and everything else you can collapse into the frame of a personal computer. So that's, that's right. the biggest revolution yeah and that and only in 10 years time oh, yeah. while you were there and that's still pretty pretty early on when did you first start at masterphonics i started in masterphonics in 1988 and was there until 1997 oh, wow. right before the uh, turn of the century so this is still pre year 2000 so this is you know, like 23 years ago right. we're talking about so that it seems like you were on the cutting edge of digital to begin with oh, yeah. um you know i was actually a little bit shocked to to hear that it was immediately a digital career for you um were you when you were at the radio station was it analog or digital there oh, and, and it, was, was, it was completely analog when i got there and we still sure. use turntables and it's still a, a big oh, turntable wow. um library because it was a jazz station mm -hmm and a huge, huge collection of, of turntables. All production was done on reel-to-reel, quarter-inch, and we had one-half-inch and mostly quarter-inch tape machines. So all the news was razor-blade edited and wow. cut up in the morning. They would they would announce things in and work on pieces or do interviews and literally sit down with the razor blade and the edit block and slice them up and, and, yeah. and again, assemble editing. You could do an insert with razor blades, though. 
Oh, sure. <laughs> cart you machines. Know, did you have oh, yeah, we had cart oh, machines. Cart machines. So the, the, all the commercials oh, wow. and such for, um, this was a non-commercial station I was at primarily, but all the other stations I worked for were, were commercial stations as well. And all of your spots and such were on there. So the cart machine, for those who don't know it, looked a lot like an eight track, but it's a endless loop of tape. There's a loop of tape inside yeah. there. And you would, mm-hmm. we would, we would roll our own tape into our carts and such and build our own of various sizes. But you want to put a 60 second commercial on there. You grab a 70 second blank cart and you record it onto the cart. But when you press play and record, it puts a little tone on the front end on a track that doesn't play back over the air. And that's what you use to cue it up. So once you press play, it plays for its full 70 seconds. When it detects a tone again, it stops and you pull that cart out, stick it on a shelf and it's ready to go the next time you need that commercial. And you can do that same thing with automation. There were automations that were carousels that would play um, play a circle of carts for, for that yeah. kind of thing. And you could do similar stuff with the reel-to-reels too. You, you could set up an automation system that played programming back from reel-to-reels. And when it got to a place where there was supposed to be a commercial drop-in, it would go fire however many carts were programmed and then go mm-hmm. back. So you could have a timeless program that you used multiple times update the uh, commercials and such for it by, by playing a new playlist of, of uh, carts, if you will. Real quick one comment that just sounds like a workflow that is uh, working smarter, not harder. So it, it seems like you really had that down. And then uh, to make that transition over to digital seems like a, a great step for you because you were already kind of on the cutting edge of analog as well. Well, yeah, I, uh, I don't know if I would say I was on the cutting edge when I was in radio, but Glenn and crew certainly were. Sure. Excuse me. Well, you were on the cutting edge of uh, cutting edge of editing, at least with the razor blades. (laughs) That was that was pretty standard editing. I mean, even back. uh, Sure. I listened to a a bit of a piece somebody posted on Facebook the other day that was uh, a multi-track edit of the Beatles in. uh, It wasn't Penny Lane, was it? That was on the back. No, it's in Sergeant Pepper. I'm trying to remember the song. I can't remember the song. But it, there was a recent posting on Facebook where someone was showing an edit in the middle of a Beatles song, and they had actually done it faster in later versions. So they were editing and using pitch change basically by tape speed at the same time to build a the version that ended up on every road. Oh, that's very cool. Um, Sorry, I, interrupt, I interrupted you there, Ted. You had a thought. Oh, no, I was just going to go back to Master sure. Phonics that, you know, yeah, yeah like they, trans- they always had a reputation, uh, especially, you know, in the probably in the 90s for being, um, yeah, at the digital mm-hmm. forefront, like you were saying. And and I don't think back then the rest of us appreciated what they were doing and what they were trying and what you guys were accomplishing mm-hmm. from the digital side and how you really helped push the that evolution, I think, of not just uh, mastering digital mastering, but multi-track mm-hmm. work with the machines you guys were were taking a chance on at the time, and you know, a lot. Of, I think a lot of good uh, progress came from probably out of that facility alone, as as far as uh, developing and, and helping uh, understand what you know digital audio technology was was working and what wasn't working. And well, I think so. Yeah. It 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 was. Um... Glenn was always progressive and always embracing right. whatever new technologies came along and trying it. And uh, my job as the tech for the facility, a lot of times was to say, okay, here's this thing. 
go back in the in the shop and test it. And of course, yeah. later when we got digital test sets and those kind of things, we could look at linear, look at what people are doing on dither. Even mm -hmm. those JVC systems, the 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 first thing, my first experience with dither, I didn't know was dither, but it made so much sense later because you had to discover all of these things. You had to discover dither. Right. You had to discover the weaknesses in, of, of bad clocking and the benefits of good clocking. And digital mm -hmm. got a little black eye going in because we didn't understand all the things that we didn't know we needed to understand when, uh, right. when yeah, it was leading true. edge. Yeah. The JVC system happened to be decent and sounded mm -hmm. good. The Mitsubishi and Otari 32s, which were also co-developed by the two of them, but essentially one did the electronics and the other did the uh, did the transports. The transports were all Otari, and they collaborated on it, but they sounded good. So we kind of got lucky on those, or at least selected the ones that sounded good in some of those recordings. Go listen to the old George Strait box set that Glenn remastered. That was recorded primarily to those to those JVCs uh, once once the digital stuff started becoming available, and they still sound great today. You know, with early sixteen bit converters, you can you digital done right. Um, my yeah. line has always yeah, been: absolutely. digital done right is transparent to the source. We didn't get transparent completely for a long time, but analog is always a processing medium, so it, it's what mm -hmm. you want what you're after it's what your tools are but if you do digital right it doesn't it, it was never a detriment and the theory was never wrong but the implementation of it was something that we had to learn to finesse over time i was going to say um, another geek point that you can cut out later if you like the jvc system had a dc offset the dc would drift a little bit inside there mm -hmm. and you're looking at these at the picture of black and white dots of course on a on a screen right so you would actually adjust the DC offset so that you're not wasting some bits at the bottom with the DC offset, but you adjusted mm -hmm. it just till one bit was flickering. And that would be mm. positive or negative, depending on where you left the adjustment. So I actually decided later that that was quasi-random, asymmetrical, rectangular dither that we were applying mm -hmm. to this 16-bit signal because that little flickering bit at the bottom actually yeah. served the same purpose and, and as dither and linearized the signal into the noise floor. Wow. <laughs> that's a key point. <laughs> no, that's a very yeah, cool it, point. Yeah, it is. Wow. And it, yeah, that's where, that's amazing. That's a lot where then where a lot of the, uh, I mean, so kind of what you were doing was, was research really, right? right? In the real world. Yep. You're doing practical research to to help develop these formats in a way you right. know it's amazing i mean i never really thought about it that way right and i'll tell you one more project that was at master phonics that was uh a lot of fun a lot of work and i had hair before that <laughs> but there was a cold war piece of technology from at&t that uh, became called the disc box and essentially it was a big box full of 32-bit floating point processors all these slide-in cards on there each had 16 on them russ ham of gotham audio and then later at the time g prime would go to trade shows at the javits in new york for uh, mm -hmm. different technologies and just look around and he sees this board at a military electronics trade show and he asked the guy from at&t well what do you do with this and they said cold war's over you tell us 
The Cold War is over. You tell us what to do with it. And they had been using it to actually track the sound signatures of Russian submarines in the Atlantic wow. Ocean. Wow. And wow. now that they didn't need to track the Russian subs like that anymore, <laughs> they were trying to see if there was any other application for this technology. So a guy from AT&T working on a Spark Station laptop wrote code that made that box think it was our SSL. Wow. George Massenberg's guys came in from GML Labs, and we took the total mm -hmm. recall system on the SSL hostage. And instead of saying one knob and one button at a time, like you did for total recall to an eight bit converter to store a number, to play it back in the video game that lets you match the knobs later, you did all 64 channels at once of the console plus the center section. And it would say, give me the large fader. Give me this knob. Give me the large fader again. Give me this knob. Give me the large fader. Prioritizing the large fader because those are live moves that you're trying to automate. And mm -hmm. looking at the positions of all the knobs and buttons on a, a module and squirting that down an Ethernet cable to the box that plugged all those numbers into the coefficients that equaled the functions of the console. Wow. So we That's used amazing. the SSL as the world's largest, most expensive mouse in the yeah. world. <laughs> and it operated in parallel to the analog system using those extra sections on the pots. And George's crew built a little converter box on the bottom that would do the scanning and convert all 64 channels worth of data over to 12-bit numbers, so greater precision than we had with the uh, Total Recall system, and feed those into the box. So we got to, uh, there was actually no manual for that system. There was some documentation, <laughs> and I was a living manual for it at Masterphonics. And then if you have a question, you just phone Georgia. <laughs> On the scanning system, yeah, or Tom Schlum, who yeah. did most of the work for that, who was uh, who was with George at the time. And the hard parts where someone would say, well, sometimes when I'm working on the SSL, I like to work in this mode where I press this button and I do that. And I had to you know, try to close my eyes and do the signal flow in my head and say, okay, here's how close I can get you to that. Okay. <laughs> I remember John Hampton out of uh, Ardent in Memphis, uh, one of the partners in Ardent. And John was an amazing engineer, one of the fastest engineers I ever met. He would sit down and he he would get bored. He was so so good and so fast, but he would just get bored with what he was doing. So he would like to try different things. So he would ask me questions like that and look at me and think about it a second. And turn around to the console and press play and then take it out of the digital mode to where he's actually listening to the analog console underneath. Go back to the digital mode and say, yeah, the digital sounds better. Okay, tell me oh, that that's again. Funny. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's funny. But we had that system in really for the better part of a year or so was the was the prime use of it, year, year and a half. And uh, John Guest mixed six months straight in that room on that wow. console with Reba and George Strait and all of these great artists. Henry Gordy Jr. used it on his wife, Patty Loveless's albums and other projects he was working on. There were a few guys that really latched onto it because it just took the noise floor away. So you could actually use all your bits in your yeah. in your CD because you weren't wasting 15 bits on the bottom with a with the noise floor of a of a busy console with a lot of faders open. Yeah. So the Did uh, somebody in LA also have a yeah. after you guys maybe uh, had Conway a had based on that Conway system, had right? one. Uh, they built the interface for a Neve as well. Conway had that for a while, and then uh, the primary use of it though there was a portable system that ran around for a while. 
and Mick Kozowski ended up with the Portable That's System. That's what I'm thinking of. And yeah, Mick yeah. did Mariah Carey and Tony Braxton and tons and tons right. of Sony product in New York out of his basement. And he was the only other person in the world. And he, he used his for another year or so after uh, after Masterphonics finally uh, mothballed. Yeah. Years. Yeah, wow. that's what I'm thinking of. I was at Conway for a bit, but that was way after that. But I, now I remember Buddy talking about it. Yeah. Because Buddy was a guy, too, that also kind of tried to get into what was new and, and experiment and, mm -hmm. you know, but not like Master Phonics that, you know, you guys had a, such a long history of pushing the digital format mm. the formats. Well, and and you know. analog, too. Before there was a, yeah, yeah, before true, there true, was a yeah. G series console, uh, Glenn mm -hmm. brought David Labar, a former chief engineer of his. Uh, back in, and David had also been chief engineer at Valley People, who made VCAs, Valley Audio. Right. And he wanted David to look at the VCAs in the SSL and say, well, can we make them better? And David <laughs> came into Glenn and said, well, yes, I can make them better, but you'll never hear it. And he says, what do you mean? He said, well, the rest of the path through the console yeah. is, is going to wash it out. So we started experimenting with that, and we looked at opening every stage of the console up. Every single circuit opened up to 50 kilohertz. Uh, the 4K never had any specs. Pro there were never any specs printed for the SSL 4K right. because they didn't want to admit to a few things, I think. If you went from a line-in, fairly short path to the center section, you were, what, 1.2? db down maybe 2 db down at 20k because every yeah. circuit would pass 20 kilohertz but with group delay and such you would get roll off and so, right so we opened every circuit up in our ssl to to 50k and we put bigger caps in and such so that there was yeah. some extra uh, you know a, a big cap on a power supply can kind of act like a battery boost we had so much sure. capacitance across our power supply that i couldn't just turn the power supply on if all the buckets on the console were on. We had to turn the power supply on and bring one bucket at a time online oh, so we didn't yeah. crash the uh, <laughs> the SSL power supplies with all of that. And we uh, were at a trade show and, and talking with SSL and they had just come out with the G series and they said, mm -hmm. well, you show us ours and, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you show us yours and we'll show you ours. So they brought the couple of modules from a G down to Masterphonics and we dropped them in the in the 4K frame next to next to ours and listened to them and they had essentially and then compared the schematics and they had essentially done with the G what we had done with the 4K and, with and the e opened it up whatever, and yeah. really and, and really started boosting the the analog quality through it in in that long path but our VCA still sounded better. <laughs> that's great. Wow, that's a great story. I think you'll agree that it was a great story indeed. Ted and I enjoyed having this great conversation with Mr. Wells and want to bring it all to you, but we're going to have to end it there and bring you the rest on our next episode. Be sure to join us for part two, and we'll hear more of these great stories from our good friend and industry veteran, Mr. Frank Wells. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Focusrite Pro Podcast. This mostly bi-monthly podcast is produced and hosted by me, Dan Hughley, for Focusrite. Music is by Merlin. 
Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join our conversation on social media at Focusrite Pro. For more information, please visit our website at www.pro.focusrite.com.